1: Well, let's take our Bibles again tonight and turn once more to Ezra, chapter 1, verse number 1, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stood up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. He is there among you of all his people. His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God uh, that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods and with beasts, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Also Cyrus uh, the king brought forth the vests of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of uh, Mithridath the treasurer, and number them unto Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, 30 charges of gold, 1,000 charges of silver, and 9 and 20 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, a 1,000. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shesh-bazar bring up with them of the captivity they brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem." So, we've already set the the context historically. uh, God has been pleased to to raise up Cyrus to be the means whereby the people of God are to return to their own land. You go back further to Isaiah's time. You remember the time when God warned Judah of impending judgment due to their unbelief and to their idolatry. And so uh, a couple hundred years, almost not quite, uh, before the rising of Cyrus, uh, his name was predicted in the prophecies of Isaiah. And in that we see God's mercy towards his people. You see, the history following Isaiah's prophecy is accounted for us here in 2 Chronicles in the book prior to Ezra. And you remember in Second Chronicles thirty six, and we see king after king being guilty of sinning against God. Until you get to verse number fourteen of Second Chronicles thirty six, where it says, Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen, and polluted the house of the Lord which it hallowed in Jerusalem. And in light of all of this sin, this advancing sin before the face of God, then it says how they mocked the Lord's messengers in verse 16. And then verse 17, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God." great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasure of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. And so you have there the accounting of God's uh, just treatment of his people due to their persistent sin. And yet in wrath, God gave promises of mercy Promises of mercy, particularly in the mouth of Jeremiah, and promises of mercy that spoke of a 70-year period of captivity. You have that detail in 2 Chronicles 36 and the verse number 21. To fulfill the mouth of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath. And here's the reference. To fulfill threescore and ten years. There was a time appointed of God, whereby the captivity would come to a close and the people would indeed return to their land, ultimately for the coming of Messiah, ultimately for the glory of God and the fulfillment of his covenant purposes. And as that appointed time comes, the 70 years are coming to a close. God raises up Cyrus to accomplish his will in accordance with his character. And we noted the character of God in Isaiah and how God's character really guaranteed his raising a man like Cyrus to accomplish his will. And so when you get to the details of Ezra chapter 1, what you're seeing here is Cyrus as an instrument in God's hand. Isaiah 44 and 45, God says, I'm going to raise up this man, his name is Cyrus, and he's going to be an instrument in my hand to bring the people back into the land. And so Ezra chapter 1 comes in that setting. Cyrus is God's man. Cyrus is going to execute God's will. And as such, what he says and does are expressions of the will of God in the outworking of the work of God. If Cyrus is a a minister in God's hand, a servant of the Lord, then what he does is in fulfillment of God's will. And how he does it is indeed a revelation of God's will in his workings. And so we're going to see that tonight, because what you see in Ezra chapter 1 are really descriptions and expressions of the work of God. Now, in fact, what we'll see here is going to sound very, very familiar. For the principles here are true whenever God advances his cause and his kingdom. So, what you're seeing here, you may see in the days of Moses, in the days of of Joshua, in the days of Elijah, in the days of the apostles, you see the very same principles coming to the fore— in the Word of God, in these various junctures, when the kingdom of God advances. And so we're going to see it here. We're going to see these, these very simple and well-known principles, and yet things that we must always be reminded of in the work of God. And so there are five that I want to very quickly highlight with you tonight, So we'll, we'll take each one very briefly. First of all, please note that God's work, or if you like to say His cause or His kingdom, God's work Cause our kingdom advances under his sovereign will. And nothing surprising, nothing unusual here, but you'll see in verse number 2, Cyrus makes this proclamation, and he says, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now, it's just really fascinating uh, to consider the influence of Daniel. Over Cyrus. Uh, we saw last time that Daniel is certainly prominent in Cyrus' reign. He's a chief ruler in the land, even as Cyrus uh, takes over the Babylonians. And then uh, Daniel is involved even in this Persian reign. We saw that. And there's a vision in Daniel 10 that was given to Daniel in the reign of Cyrus. And so also, we saw last time, it's very possible, although it's hard to be absolutely dogmatic, that Darius and Cyrus are the same person mentioned in Daniel chapter 6. And therefore, Cyrus, if he goes by his name, Darius also may well have been the one who came to the lion's den. And that's more conjecture. There are certainly different views in that regard. Whatever the case may be, If he comes after that Darius, he would certainly have known the events of the lion's den, and he was certainly greatly influenced by Daniel. And you see that in terms of the orthodox theology that Cyrus speaks of here. He is clear and precise in his understanding of God. Look what he says. Verse 2 the Lord. There's the title of Jehovah. There's a title of the God of Israel, the Lord God of heaven. He says, says Cyrus here, he notes that the Lord Jehovah, he is the God, verse number three. He refers to the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God. Now, this is very, very significant. Again, the general thought in pagan lands at this time, and in fact, most of the time through the Old Testament, was that there was permission given, if you like, in in the pagan lands for each nation to have their own God. And so you live in this territory, you've got your God, we've got our God, Israel, you want Jehovah, he can be your God, but he's not my god. And therefore, there was this this pluralistic confusion regarding multiple gods, but there was no acknowledgement of there being one true and living God. But Cyrus here is giving acknowledgement to the fact there is one true and living God, that Jehovah God is not just God of Israel, he is the God of the heavens. And it's a description again of the universal reign and rule of Jehovah. Though God of Israel says Cyrus. Though he is God of Israel, though his house is in Jerusalem, yet though he's God of Israel in Jerusalem, yet he has the power to raise up me as a king of Persia to do his bidding. this is a remarkable demonstration of an orthodox understanding of the sovereignty of God's Thus God hath given him, verse number 2, all the kingdoms of the earth, and the Lord hath charged him to build him an house. And so it's a recognition again by Cyrus that God's work advances under God's sovereign control and will. And God's work can only advance under his sovereign control and will. We will not be able— to cause the growth or the advance of the kingdom of Christ beyond the will of God. What we do is governed by God's sovereign will. But that's looking at it in a more negative sense. In a positive sense, God's work will advance because it is his will. And because he is sovereign over his will, then his work will advance, his name will be glorified, his kingdom will advance, and Christ's church will be built, because he is sovereign over the kingdoms of this earth. God's good pleasure, in the language of Isaiah 53, God's good pleasure, God's will, will indeed prosper in the servant's hand, namely Christ. God's going to govern the affairs of this world to ensure that the pleasure of his hand prospers in the work of Christ Jesus. Nothing can prevent the will of God being done. No one, no power, no authority is stronger than God to prevent God's will being done. God is able to raise up a Cyrus to do his bidding and to do his will. Now, we, we struggle I don't know about you, but I look at our denomination, and I think to myself, I wonder where we'll be in ten years' time, or fifteen years' time, or twenty years' time, and it's hard to get beyond the fact that growth seems impossible. In fact, I've heard that very language in in recent times. There seems to be no way whereby the work of God can grow. We're going to hold on to the status quo at the the very most. We're not going to see growth and development. See, forget something. Whilst we cannot imagine how the work of God can progress and advance, God is able to do that very work. And nothing is too hard for our God. And God, as He works in this world, works in His sovereign will to surprise the people of God by doing things that they did not expect. God delights to surprise His people. And so Cyrus comes and does the bidding of God, because God's work advances according to His sovereign will, and God is able to move and act. He can change a stubborn king, a stubborn ruler, and He can make that stubborn ruler do His bidding, and so He can change any heart of any man according to His will. God is able. And so His work advances under and according to His sovereign will. Secondly, God's work advances, yes, in one sense, through the actions of men. But God moves in their hearts. And so yet yeah, we do acknowledge this. We, we acknowledge that God uses human instruments. God used the Cyrus. And Cyrus here acts freely. Cyrus does what he wants to do. But the language is very, very clear in verse number one. The Lord speaks stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made proclamation." Again, there is some mystery here as to how does Cyrus come to know the will of God? Was it through Daniel? Was it through Daniel sharing Jeremiah? Was it through Daniel sharing the words of Isaiah? We're not told. But Cyrus clearly understood the word of God, but what Cyrus does not say, he does not say, he was not aware of what God is doing in the background. The narrative tells us that. The Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, but in Cyrus' own mind, he acknowledges that God has raised him up, and therefore he will do the bidding of God to send the people back to build the temple. But behind Cyrus' actions and words is the work of God. God stirs up His Spirit. And so it is over in verse number 5. Again, in relation to others involved in this work, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all those them whose spirit God had raised. And so you were seeing in Cyrus and also the people the same work of God in moving the human heart to do His will. From a human perspective, The people delight to do the will of God. From a human perspective, they desire that. They have an impulse to do the will of God. You think of the the, the calling to the gospel ministry. And we often talk about young people are not so young, and they feel called to the ministry, and they describe this impulse and this burden that they cannot shake off. A determination. I must do the will of God in this regard. I, I must preach the gospel. Here we're seeing the background to that. It is the work of God in the human heart, stirring their spirits, making them willing, as it says in Psalm 110, making them willing in the day of the power of the Messianic King, Christ Jesus. He works to make men willing. And they are willing, they are glad, and they are happy to do the will of God. They are made willing to be saved, and they are made willing to serve. Both are true. God does not just work in us to draw us to Christ. He works in us to give us a desire to serve His name. It is the will of God, and it is the work of God. You see, in days when the spiritual tide is out, there is usually a lack of enthusiasm in the work of God. You get that sense of the work of God being more of a chore than a glad choice. Sabbath is a habit, not a happy place. And these things come when the spiritual tide is out and we we, we see the world around us, but truth be told, we look at our own hearts. And more often than not, the work of God is a drudgery and a chore. I try not to be harsh. I'm just looking at my own experience at times. You think to yourself, this is not easy. And the work of God is is not a joy that ought to be. And so what are we to do in this situation? Well, it is incumbent upon our ministers to preach Christ. It is the exaltation of Christ that moves the human soul. When they see the one who is worthy of all praise and all service and all adoration, We we must make much of Christ. But we must also directly ask God to move hearts. The language here of God stirring up the Spirit should be the language of our prayers for the work of God. As we consider our brothers and sisters, as we consider the wider denomination, we should be praying urgently, Lord, stir up, and you, you fill in the blank name after that. Stir up their heart. Give them a desire and a burden to serve the Lord. May God stir up young people. To pursue the work of God in missions or in ministry, whatever the case may be, may God work in their hearts and give them such a burden that they cannot shake that burden off. May God stir up people to genuinely be glad when the house of God is open, that they can genuinely say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, that when they miss the house of God, they really miss the house of God that they want to be there, but they're hindered and that really burdens their souls because there's such a longing and a burden to be about the Lord's business. May God stir up people to be eager and excited by the gospel and by the glory of God. May God stir up people to be eager and excited to witness for God and to pray in the place of prayer each and every week. May God stir up this church and move in our souls that we don't simply go through the motions of religious performance, but there is no joy and delight in the work of God. We don't want to be in such a place. I want the entire church to be infected with such a burden and such a zeal in their spirits That when the doors open, people are, are rushing into the house of God. And, and when revival comes, what happens when revival comes? It's not a case of once in a while is enough. We want more prayer meetings. We want more times of Bible preaching. We want to know more of God. That's what happens in history when revival comes. There is that desire to be in the Lord's house and to be about the Lord's business. Let's not be content with the spirit that says we're doing enough. May God stir up our souls to give us an eagerness to be about the Lord's work for the glory of his name. We want the spirit, we want the Lord to stir up our hearts. For the work of God. Well, thirdly, God's work advances only when God goes with his people. Verse number three again. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Here's the burden. A uh, recognition again that Moses' burden should be our burden. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Let the testimony of God to Joshua be our understanding also. The Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. We, we want that. We want to be those who can be said off as it was of the Corinthians. We are laborers together with God. We want to know the Lord's presence in the work. And again, we must do so upon our knees pleading with God that if you do not carry us into this work or that work, let us not go in that direction. You must come with us, Lord, if we are to know your blessing and the work of God advancing. That should be our burden. We should seek to be faithful, not to grieve the Spirit of God. There's no sin in the camp that will grieve the Lord, and therefore the presence of God be at a distance. We want the Lord with us in the work of God. Fourthly, God's work advances when the people go forward in unity. Verse number four, there's a description of those who may remain. Some were going back to the land, and again, we see that there is the recovery in the minister's also His other name is also given here in Shech Bazar. That's rubble. There's that returning in his time, a later return in Nehemiah's time. But for those who remain in verse number four, they are to contribute also to the building program. That they're to give and support the work of God. And so in verse number six it says this And all that they oh, sorry and all they that were about them strengthened their hands. There was a unity of purpose, because how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commandeth the blessing. Like he did in Pentecost and in the early church, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul unity is vital for the advance of the gospel. It was so in Philippi. They were to strive together for the faith of the gospel. They were to do all things without disputings and murmurings. Paul understood unity is absolutely essential for the advance of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom of Christ. We must pray against division. The devil's purpose in the church is to divide the work of God. We must pray against division, and as we pray against division, we must ensure by God's grace that we are not an agent of such division. That our actions, though they may seem wise to yourselves, if they're going to harm the unity of the church, we must be careful not to engage in such practices. I'm not suggesting. That we are soft on truth, we stand for truth, but in secondary issues we must show charity and love. Accepting differences, even in the house of God, but differences that do not provoke division. Unity is essential in the work of God. And as you pray for our churches and our mission fields, please pray urgently God, keep division out of our work. Unity is required for the work of God to go forward. Fifthly, God's work advances in conformity to his revealed will. And this really sets the scene for what we'll see in future studies. You see, God's work is under his sovereign will. We, we rejoice in that. God, God's work it, it advances as he moves in the hearts of people. God, God's work advances when he goes with his people. We, we see this. We see God's work advancing when people go forward in unity. But all of that advancement is in conformity with God's revealed will. On the surface, it is the word of God through Isaiah and through Jeremiah. It's the word of God that comes to Cyrus, and he says in verse 2, He hath charged me to build him a house. Cyrus's actions are in obedience to the will of God. And the chapter before us is really a chapter that marks recovery. You remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and the verse number 18, it says this, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, all these he brought to Babylon. And then down in verse number 8 of chapter 1 of Ezra, even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth. What of those? the vessels, verse 7, of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem. You know, in my Bible, it's one column to the next. Just a few words between those two verses. Yet there's significant decades of human history. But in a blink of an eye, if you like, in in the mind of God, he brings about recovery and restoration. And what he's doing is he's bringing the people back to what matters, the temple, the worship of God, the sacrifice, the gospel pictured in the temple, the gospel of Christ being the foundation of the well-being of the people of God. The temple comes before the wall. Ezra before Nehemiah. And God is bringing the people back to the point where God is central in their lives because that is his will. And God's work always advances when the gospel is central and the worship of God is paramount in the life of the people of God. Advance comes in conformity to God's revealed will. And to that end, we call upon the Lord. To that end, we get before God and we say, Lord, we know your word. We delight in your will. Grant us the grace to do your will. To your good pleasure.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.